One of the lessons I learned on sabbatical, I'm a terrible sermon listener. Now, I'm sure some of my struggle is common to all of us. It's a struggle to listen if I'm too tired. I struggle to pay attention if I'm in physical or emotional distress. And it's a challenge to follow some preacher's meandering sermon points. It was bad enough that Laura made a rule on sabbatical. I don't want to hear anything about the preacher's sermon unless you're going to tell me how God applied it to your own heart. I don't care about transitions. I don't care about illustrations. I don't care about the exegetical work that was done poorly. I just want to know, did God work in your heart? Now, I, I suspect that some of my problem as a sermon listener is professional because most of the hours I spend preaching are on this side of the pulpit. And I don't just mean physically here in the, in the sanctuary, but in my study, wrestling with the, the text, uh, structuring the sermon. And even when I'm here in Faith Sanctuary, I, I still often listen as a preacher because I'm helping staff as they grow in their ministry of preaching. I'm, I'm you know, working with our missionaries so that they can communicate clearly. But, but listening to a biblical, te biblical text, praying that God would then apply it to our lives, it takes work. Like, it takes work on your part, sitting as listeners. Are we willing to do the work to hear the text? Now, surely that might mean changing some of our weekly routines and schedules. I've heard other preachers remind their congregations, Sunday worship is a Saturday decision. You're not going to get here rested and ready to listen if you didn't make some choices on Saturday night. But it also means that, that our very attitude, our posture, needs to, to be one of humility. That we come willing to listen to God's word, that we might apply the truth. And not apply it to the person sitting near us, but expecting that God would apply the truth to us. And so even as a, as a growing sermon listener as a weak sermon listener, I noticed a theme in the sermons that I heard this summer. Now, they weren't, it wasn't an intentional theme. It wasn't a theme because I was at different churches hearing different preachers. It was a theme that God was using in my life, not only to humble me, but to encourage me because repeatedly across a, a dozen different churches, I heard sermons from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And since God's word isn't just active inside a church sanctuary, it meant that I would read and listen to Ephesians outside the sanctuary. And so this morning, we're going to jump in, and we're just going to look at two verses. A fragment of a sentence in, in Paul's letter. And when we really listen, we find the power of the gospel and God's assurance of salvation. Look again with me at verse, at verse 13 of Ephesians 1. Pastor Mike read for us, that you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. To, to hear, to listen, is essential to being a Christian. To becoming a Christian, to, to hear the gospel, think of the way the Apostle Paul describes it to the church in Rome. In Romans 10, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So to call out to God and ask for salvation means you will receive salvation, but then he asks the question, well, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one they have, of whom they have not 
heard? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming to them? See, hearing the word of God is essential to belief and to our continued growth in the gospel. We need to hear the gospel proclaimed. Now, that can be you and I have the great privilege of having the text in front of us, of often having it always accessible in our pockets to to pull up in times of need or, or in those moments when you have a few minutes. We can hear the word of truth simply by opening the word of God. And when Paul in Romans says that how can they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them, he's not primarily thinking of the the role of the minister in a sanctuary. He's thinking of the role of the Christian in the streets of the city, around the the tables when you gather with family and friends, when when you rub shoulders with your coworkers, that that's where the gospel will be heard. And so we need to listen. And then Paul says that Verse 13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him. So when you hear, what's the response? I mean, you're, you're constantly taking in information and data all the time. Most of it you just brush aside. So much so that, that we've trained ourselves to be such poor listeners that, that someone close to you will say, do you remember this conversation we had? And you just stare at them like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This conversation that was central to to their understanding of the moment you're now in, and you're thinking, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. Because we've trained ourselves to just scroll past information that we don't need in the the moment. To just brush it aside, to, 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 as parents, sort of drown out the constant voices of the little ones and say, I'll deal with it later. But... But what we're told here is you need to listen. You need to hear the word of truth and then respond. And what's the response? It's belief. Having believed, then you become a follower of Christ. Yes, it means you, you understand cognitively the truth, that Jesus was the Savior who rescued you from sin, that his death paid the penalty for your sins, and that his resurrection gives you life. But it's more than just understanding that. I mean, the Bible tells us that the devil knows that. The demons understand the, the historical sequence of what Jesus did. It means throwing yourself upon the mercy and power of God. Of saying, I can't trust myself, I will trust in what you have done. It's a commitment of our hearts, a commitment of our wills, our, our, our actions thrown. Instead of trusting upon ourselves, we lean into the truth of who God is and trust what he has said. Now, of course, Paul's words were a shock to his listeners in the first century Greco-Roman culture. Wait, you're going to tell me that some no-name prophet who got killed by the Romans from some little out-of-place town down in Judea, that he's the savior of the world? Like, you're calling this, Paul, the word of truth? I mean, at best, it sounds like nonsense. Now, the the ancient response to the Christian message isn't all that much different than than our responses because we we tend to think that, that, well, this idea of truth, well, this is relative. It's it's up to my understanding of it. It's from my perspective. We even even use phrases like, well, well, that's your truth, or I'm glad that works for you, but that's that's not true for me. Those are the kinds of conversations we have. Maybe that's even a phrase you've used over the course of this week. 
The problem is when we, when we try and move forward and figure out, well, what really is true here, we, we understand that logically two people can't have diametrically opposed positions and they both be true. Now, they could both be wrong, of course, but if you believe A and I believe not A, well, then one of us must be, at least one of us must be wrong. And yet we live in a, in a culture where we say, well, you know, that works for you. You have your way of thinking. You have your religious system. Well, of, of course, all these religions should have a seat at the table. But the Apostle Paul steps in because he, he comes with the truth of God and says, no, when we, when we wrestle with fundamental questions, who we are, where do we come from, what are we doing here, what's gone wrong in the world, is there any hope of fixing things? Now, Mike already mentioned Faith Explored. Those are exactly the kinds of questions that we ask and answer on Wednesday nights. And then maybe you have a really specific question. We end each night with a Q&A. I mean, you can ask me anything from, from aliens to, to what's happening in your own life to, to your recent visit to the hospital. Um, I mean, I'm not that kind of doctor, but I can give you some theological advice. But come with, with these questions because, yes, it can, be, it can be hard to arbitrate between opposing viewpoints to figure out, well, which is which? And in most instances, we would want somebody to step in and say, actually, you're only seeing part of this. Let me, let me fill you in. Let me explain this to you. And as Christians, that's what we believe is happening here when we listen to the Word of God. God himself steps in and says, left to yourselves, you're going you're gonna to fight and bicker about what might be right. So I'll just tell you. Let me just explain it to you. Now, that means as Christians, when we, when we hold, when we hear this word of truth, when we believe it, we can't do so arrogantly because it's not like, hey, look what I figured out. I figured out all the truth, and you guys are all dummies. No, it's I was hopeless and was running away from God, but God stepped in. And in the gospel, the gospel of salvation, he tells me what is true, and he offers me a way of salvation. And what's required of me? Not any great feats of strength or intellect. It's to humble myself and throw myself at the mercy of God to merely believe. See, we, we don't have the truth because we're smarter than anyone else. We needed an authority to give us the answers, and that's what Jesus has done through his word. He entered into history to tell us the truth, and the truth is here for us, given to us by God himself. So we hear and believe, and then Paul explains what's true then for us. He says, having believed, or, or first, look back at verse 13. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. That you were in Christ. You have been, you belong to Christ. You, you are included with him. In, in, at the final judgment, there will be two categories. See, we, we like to think there'll be the category of the, like, undecided in the middle of, well, you know, I'd like to figure this out still, or, or the category of the, the not quite good enough who can still work their way into heaven. But no, at the final judgment, there will be two categories. Those who are in Christ, who have by faith been forgiven of their sins and received the gift of his righteousness, and then everybody else. Those are the categories. And what Paul says is, you also were included in Christ. You now belong to Christ. It's, it's the shorthand phrase that, that we're in Christ that, that Paul uses dozens of times throughout his letters. 
And in, and in just a couple of words, that you are in him or in Christ, you heard it even in our call to worship from earlier in this chapter, that you belong to Christ, that by faith you are included with him, that everything he did now belongs to you. His death paid for your sins. His goodness is counted as, as if you were the one who obeyed God. You are in Christ. And look, look with me at the, the little words there at the beginning of verse 13. And you also were included. That also is, is surprising. Because it wouldn't be surprising for Paul, a Jew raised in the, the Old Testament faith, to, to go to, to, into a synagogue and say, you, physical heirs of Abraham, are included now in the work of the Messiah. See, that's not surprising at all. That's, that's what, the Old Testament, what, what, what the, the Old Testament believers were anticipating, that one day Christ, the Messiah, would come, and we, the Jews, will be included in Christ. But Paul goes to a, a church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, says to, to people from all over the empire, people ethnically diverse, people that don't at all look like him or have the sort of background that he had as a, a Jewish boy grow, growing up in, in, in Judea, or growing up in uh, another part and, then, and studying in, in Jerusalem. He says to people from all parts of the world, and you also, you too are included in Christ. It doesn't matter where you're from or where you grew up. It doesn't matter if you heard the Torah read in Hebrew as a child. You also are included in Christ when you heard and believed. I mean, that's a wildly, a wildly welcoming statement. I mean, it, it, it's there in just that one little word, you also. You too. If you hear and believe, then you're included among the people of God. Now, of course, it was true, even in the Old Testament, that Israel, the people of God, were chosen not because of anything good that they had done. God explicitly and repeatedly reminds them of that. That all that they bring to, to the, into the covenant with God, into their relationship with God, is their sins, their mess, their filth. That's all that they bring. Everything that they need is provided for them by God. Forgiveness and cleansing and relationship. They were unconditionally chosen. They did nothing that would give God reason to say, oh, for this reason, on this condition, I'll let you into heaven. On this condition, I'll let you be in a relationship with me. No, they're unconditionally chosen. There is nothing good in Israel. They couldn't and didn't earn their salvation. Now, it wouldn't be hard if you walked through the city of Ephesus in the first century to look around and say, I don't think God's choosing anyone here. I mean, it was a city in which idolatry was on display. At the highest point of the city was the, the great temple. Everywhere you walked through the, the streets, the promiscuity and the, the vice of the city would be right there in front of you. One commentator, he describes Ephesus this way. He says, human pride, false morality, and deceitful idolatry all thrived in Ephesus. Human pride, false morality, deceitful idolatry. That's what you would see in Ephesus. This you also being thrown out to include Ephesians means that God's grace is given to us not by anything good we have done, but entirely by his mercy. And sadly, those same descriptions of pride, false morality, and idolatry could be applied to our own culture today. 
and, and, and hear this carefully. I'm not saying this as one standing here pointing our fingers out there at the culture. The reason our culture could be described in these same ways is because of our hearts and our attitudes. Apart from the gospel, that's who I am. Somebody proud of myself, chasing after my own morality, willing to, to overlook my own failures, but hold you to a really strict standard. Willing to, to expect you to forgive me, but, but to be slow to forgive others. One who is willing to take the good things God has given and turn them into idols, into false gods that will give me joy and satisfaction. See, the reason that, that we need to hear this same truth, that you also were included in Christ, is because our own hearts are turned away from God, running to do our own things. Just, just one example here of the ways in which we can take something good God has given and turn it into an idol. That, that deceives us because we think this is where I will find joy and satisfaction, and yet it leaves us feeling empty. Think about work, your vocation, your job. It's a good gift given by God to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, given the task of, of gardeners, of caring for the creation, of, of caring for the, the creatures, of, of, of ruling over all that God had given them. It, this is a gift given to them before the, the punishment of sin. See, some of us sort of drag ourselves through our work weeks thinking, if only I could unloose, my, you know, un, unloose this chain and, and be done of this, this drudgery. And maybe your job really feels like that. But your vocation is, is something that, that God gave so that we would have purpose, that we could care for our families, that we could provide for our communities, that we could make the earth flourish and be a blessing to everyone around us. But, but some of us take this good gift of work and turn it into an idol. Some of us, by running at full speed, leaving everything else behind and saying, I'll get around to the other stuff in my life when I've succeeded here in my vocation. Now, if, if we're stopped and asked, is that what you're doing? I think few of us would be willing to say, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm destroying everyone in my life so that I can have vocational success. But maybe ask that question of those closest to you. What do you think is more important to me? My job or you? I don't know that I would have wanted to ask my kids that back in May. Hey, what's more important, do you think, in my life? You, my family, or my job? Because the frustration that they saw flow out of me came often from my vocation. Because I thought, if I, if I just work a little harder, then I'll succeed, right? If I do a little bit more, then my job will bring me joy and satisfaction all of the time. No, in a world filled with sin, your job is not going to fulfill you every day. You're going to have some days where you feel like, I think I'm way further behind than I was at the start of the day, and I, and I, I, I got a lot done, and I'm, it, everything, everything went wrong. But we take something good, and we create it into an idol. It, it was meant to give us purpose and dignity. It was meant so that we could use the, the resources of the world to serve those around us, our families, our communities, and we use it to make ourselves feel good and valuable and significant. But Paul says to, to us, you also were included in Christ. You who are selfish and turn away from God. 
you are included in Christ. You created your own moral rules to justify your own behavior. You have been included in Christ. You who chased after the cheap thrills and empty promises of this world, you have been included in Christ. And what does it mean to be included in Christ? I mean, Paul gives us a few phrases here to describe what God has done for us, our, our position now in relationship with God. Look, look again at verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What is this word of truth? It's the gospel, the good news, the announcement that the kingdom of God is here, that the king gave his life and has been raised from the dead. This good news is your salvation. It's it's not that, that God has done something out there, over there for someone else. It's that God came and rescued you. Your salvation has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. It was planned from before the creation of the world. What God has done is he has redeemed us. The redemption, look at verse 14, the redemption of those who are God's possession. You have been redeemed. God paid the price to buy you out of your slavery to sin. And what was the price? The death of Jesus the Savior. This redemption, this salvation is good news for us. We have been included with Christ. And then having believed, we're told we have been sealed. We have been guaranteed that our salvation is secure. Look at, look at Paul's argument as it flows. He says at the end of verse 13, Having believed, you are marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now we don't often send letters with a hot wax dripped on it and then a, a signet ring pressed in to authenticate the document. I mean, we sort of hold our papers up to the light and see if there's, you know, some sort of watermark there. We, we check to see that there's a stamp so that the person who witnessed the signature has authenticated that it's, that it's real. But in the ancient world, it would, it would have been common for, for official documents or even smaller messages to have been sealed shut with, a, with, with hot wax. And then when that wax dries, the only way to read the message is to break the seal and see what it says. Now, this authenticated a message on the battlefield that you knew this, this came from the commander, so I can act on it. If, if it was a, an announcement that came from the king, you knew this has the king's authority because he took his, the, the seal from his ring, pressed it into that wax, and then it was brought, and I watched it be broken in front of me. The, the language of, of seal is also used to describe the, 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 the marking of, of a brand on cattle. That you know, well, who does this one belong to? Well, just check the seal. Like, just, okay, we know where this one goes. It's a, 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 a tag of ownership. That's what verse 14 says, that we are God's possession. We've been marked with this seal. There's a guarantee that we belong to God. Now, there's some wooden tables in our Sunday school classrooms in the store, and also in the storage closet down near the gym. They're those six-foot tables that are, that are heavier than they look. If you, if you flip some of them over and look on the bottom, there are tags on them. They're, they're indications that they belong to Faith Presbyterian Church. Those tags were put on those tables in 1956. Now, they're some of the few physical remnants that predate this building. They came with us from our previous location in Trolley Square. And the tags mark the ownership, and then they tell you which storage closet they're supposed to be in course, none of those storage closets exist anymore. Now, 
I, I, I doubt that it was the tag that kept anybody from taking a table home with them. I think it's just the inconvenience of trying to slip a table in your pocket and slide it into your trunk without anybody noticing. And now that they have more than 60 years worth of paint and, and crafts and markers on them, you probably wouldn't want them now anyway. But imagine that the tag of ownership, the thing that protects you, is it says, this or she belongs to God, and God won't let her go. That's what the seal guarantees. You belong to God. And, and, and who is the seal? Paul tells us in verse 13, the seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus went on earth. When he told his disciples that he was leaving, he said, but I will give you my Holy Spirit. And they thought, no, 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 we'll keep you. Like, we'll keep you around so we can keep asking you questions. Now, of course, being with Jesus, learning at his feet would have been a great privilege. But having the Spirit is a much greater blessing because he is everywhere, not contained in a physical body. He, he never has to sleep like Jesus during his earthly ministry. He is with each one of us. The guarantee that you belong to God is that you have been given God's Holy Spirit. When you believed, you were given the Holy Spirit. It's not some special gift given to a few. It's not an extra blessing that you need. We're told that having believed, you are marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That to believe is to receive the gift of God's perpetual presence. Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, is always with you. The Spirit, then, is a deposit, we're told, in verse 14, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Because you have the Spirit right now, you have the guarantee that every promise Jesus made about what will happen to you is sure to come through. Jesus, the one who died, was raised again, ascended into heaven, had promised to give the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he said the, the Holy Spirit guarantees that everything else that will come your salvation from death itself, your resurrection into, into a new resurrected body at the end of, of history. All of that is guaranteed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul then begins to, to, to mix his metaphors here. I mean, he, it, I'm all, we're only looking at two verses here. But this is the, the conclusion of one long, ridiculously long, run-on sentence in the original Greek. The sentence started at verse 3. Now, you can't read English that way. I think you can read German that way. They just keep making the sentences longer and longer. But, but English doesn't work that way. So every translation through, throughout history in, into English has had to break up this really long statement into, into shorter phrases. But it's as if Paul, once he gets going and excited about the gospel, blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. He just then begins to, to unfold and unfurl and, and keep pulling and, and, and keep seeing this is what God has done for you. And so, of course, he's going to mix his metaphors here. He switches from the metaphor of a, of a, of a hot wax seal or the, the brand on, on, a, on an animal, and then he says, but, but you have this inheritance. You have a deposit. You have this financial resource. He switches to that kind of metaphor to talk about the spiritual blessings that we have. We have an inheritance in Christ. 
And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee that anything that you would need spiritually will be yours by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gift of Jesus the Savior. Paul talks of the language of, of inheritance. He, he says it to the Colossian church that, that they have an inheritance of the saints. Speaking to the believers in Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, when, he is, when the Apostle Paul was there ministering in Ephesus, he describes to them, he says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace because God can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. And how do you know that God will keep that guarantee? Because he has poured out his spirit on you, his church. And this future benefit of salvation, that we will be with God forever, we will, we will be with him in heaven, is a benefit for us right now. A present comfort because we have the spirit. It means when facing temptation, we have the Holy Spirit of God with us. When confronting our idols and asking the hard questions of people around us, do I care about my job more than I care about you? When they give us the hard answer, we have the resource of the Holy Spirit to help us confess our sins, to strengthen us in new obedience to follow after God. We have comfort here by the promised Holy Spirit, comfort for those who are hurting. We have peace in the midst of our chaos. The Holy Spirit is with us. And so Paul offers the the church, the assurance of our salvation because you weren't rescued because of something good you had done. You weren't chosen because of anything, anything good in you. No, in Christ, you have been saved. You are included in Christ. You've received the gospel of your salvation. All we do is hear and believe. Again, how will you hear? Will you hear as one who comes humbly to the word of God. Because there's power in the gospel message, even, even if it feels like there's not much power in the preacher. See, assurance is not a gift for those who are succeeding. The, the confidence that you belong to Christ isn't only for those who feel like, no, I'm, I'm following after God in the ways that he wants. Now, the assurance that Paul offers is assurance even for the weakest among us. You are included in Christ. You have the promised seal, the Holy Spirit. None of it was dependent upon you. Your salvation is not dependent upon who you are. Even in our weakness, we can have hope. Now, this next question might be a little unfair because we've only looked at two verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But where is Paul? when he writes this message. He's in prison. Paul, confined, kept in prison because he was preaching the gospel. But the prison shackles couldn't slow down the spread of the gospel because all people need to do is hear it. The prison guards hear the message. The visitors who are allowed to come to Paul hear the message. The church, even with Paul, the great missionary preacher, imprisoned, continues to spread the gospel message. See, prison bars can't resist the power of the gospel. And Paul's personal weakness as one in prison does not weaken the promise. You have been included in Christ. You have been 
marked in Christ with a seal. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Nothing can shake the guarantee of our inheritance. Hear this truth. Believe it. Trust in the guarantee of our salvation so that we, those who have been rescued, might be to the praise of God's glory. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which challenges us and and comforts us. Lord, for those who are listening today, wanting to believe, having heard this message, heard it read, heard it sung, Lord, give the faith now to those who hear that they might believe. Lord, for those that feel burdened and weak by the the, the struggles in life, by their own failures and brokenness, Lord, give them comfort that when they believe they have been included in Christ, they have been gifted your Holy Spirit. Lord, strengthen us and encourage us in this assurance of our salvation, that we are rescued, that we hear this good news, not because of anything good in us, but because of Jesus, our Savior. Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.